And what they thought is these, these are judges running amok because they're infatuated with what they think is moral reasoning. Their advice is that they're finding rights that are nowhere mentioned in the text of the Constitution. As one of my friends said, the judge is looking inside himself. In other words, once you move away from the text of the Constitution, they doubt that there really are moral truths out there. Welcome to Act in Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. We live in what appears at first glance to be a highly skeptical age, one characterized by moral relativism in public discourse and value freedom in science. But is this really the case? Hadley Arcus believes that, despite many people's protests to the contrary, what they do is informed, perhaps unwittingly, by an understanding of natural law. The framers of the Constitution regarded the, quote, self-evident truths of the natural law as foundational. And yet in our own time, both liberals and conservatives insist that we must interpret the Constitution while ignoring its foundation. Making the case anew for natural law, Arcus finds it not in theories hovering in the clouds or in benign platitudes like be generous, be selfless. He draws us back, rather, to the ground of natural law as the American founders understood it, the anchoring truths of common sense, truths grasped at once by the ordinary man, unburdened by theories imbibed in college and law school. In this wide-ranging conversation, Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, talks with Hadley Arcus, the founding director of the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding, as he unpacks this paradox as explored in his new book, Mere Natural Law, Originalism and the Anchoring Truths of the Constitution. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, librarian and research associate at the Acton Institute. Today I'm joined by Hadley Arcus, the Edward N. Nye Professor of Jurisprudence and American Institutions Emeritus at Amherst College. He is the founding director of the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding, as well as the author of several books, including First Things, An Inquiry into the First Principles of Morals, and Justice and Natural Rights and the Right to Choose. Today, we'll be discussing his latest book, Mere Natural Law, Originalism, and the Anchoring Truths of the Constitution, newly published by Regnery Gateway. The book is an excellent introduction to natural law, broadly understood, as well as its contemporary relevance for everyday people and for in the world of jurisprudence in particular. Hadley, welcome to Act in Line, and thank you for being with us. Well, thanks very much for having me on, Dan. So I'm sorry. This is one of my favorite institutes. It's, it's, a, it's lovely to be here with you. Yeah, well, thank you so much for taking the time here to be with us. Um, your book is really, really outstanding uh, right. introduction to the topic and also also funny. Um, so it's one that... Really? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. No, there are great jokes, and, and I, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Um, 
You begin the book with a very vivid portrait of sort of the modern moral skeptic. And I love that. How would how would you describe that sort of skeptical attitude and its rising influence in America today? Did you want me to quote that line? From sure. That it's it's a oh, great line. It's that, it's that passage from, I could bring it back from memory. It's that passage from Tom Stompard from uh, Jumpers, a play my wife, my wife and I saw in London years ago, about the skeptic, the man who will not concede that the trait from Bristol Lee's Paddington Station was he himself were there to to see it leave. But even then, he'd make that concession only under the proviso that all of the observable phenomena that are associated with the train from, Brist- from Bristol leaving Paddington Station could equally well be accounted for by Paddington Station leaving the train. And at the same time, we, we have met that guy. Yeah. He walks among us. And at the same time, he does things like vote and raise children while with having no sense of a good in which he's raising no, no no good in which he's directing the raising of his children, you know it, it's it has been so. I remember years ago with with Leo Strauss at University Church of Chicago. I remember the first moments with Strauss and the people in that room, um, gray-haired men from the military and uh, some young Catholic seminarians, aggressive Jewish kids from Chicago. And what did they have? They, they're standing against the currents of relativism. Uh, and they're they're peeling back to classical sources, the classical sources, Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates, or they're appealing to the Bible, to to the at Athens and Jerusalem. And this, why is this current of relative learning? Well, it's fend for a very simple thing that people want. It's very strong inclination to fend off judgments cast against you. So one of the one of the reflexes is simply deny. That uh, there are such standards for all judgment. Of course, we do cast judgments on the people who refuse to cast those judgments on us. If they cast judgments and refuse to get, refuse to allow us to afloat in our relativistic sea, so uh, it it, oh, it falls back on the uh, the the, uh, the absolutism of, of relativism. <laughs> they all, they each each one has his stock. So, uh, but that that. That current is that current is among us, and and there's, there's another line of stoppage that comes to mind. Now that you mentioned it, he said, at a certain point, maybe the country situation we're in, the moralist, one who takes this seriously, is about to sound like a crank haranguing the bus queue, oh, with with a demented certitude of one possessed the privilege of information. Who are you to be offering these 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 uh, arguments? But of course, you know, it's it's. The people who insist there's no truth are emphatically insisting it's true or there is no truth. And the people who say that um, truth is always relative, that we can know truths only within the historical epic in which they're held. But of course, the truth of historicism is not relative. That truth will hold on and path across the historical epic. So I remember, remember who was at Princeton 20 years ago, running into at, at, uh, Staples. And lied running against a gal who was in his, his, his graduate student history. He said, What's here? American history, 19th century. And he said, You know, already we're divided because I do think Nathan had it right when he said that doctrine and the Declaration of Independence was indeed an absolute truth. And she said, He thought it was true at the time. <laughs> there you go. That's there a, you go. That, it, it's there. It's just inveterate abundance. 
It's a this it's it's like an occupational uh tick that comes along with the fables. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it and deeply, deeply embedded in academia and all of those uh you know yes. everything that you know has been shaped by that historicism and that and that historical perspective. Um, so what what is the natural law alternative to this skepticism look like? What does it look like sort of in, in everyday life and then and then in these in these more rarefied academic contexts as well? Well, let me go back to um, what feeds the notion of mere natural law then. I, I cite my beloved my beloved late colleague Dan Robinson who wrote 18 books. One on Aristotle psychology is an important figure in the neural sciences. And he said he won us the epitaph on his tombstone. He died without a theory. <laughs> what, he was, what he's really joined about was Thomas Reed, the, 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 the marvelous great Scott philosopher, uh, with his teachings on was witty and sharp teachings on the principles of common sense. And, and by the way, he was read closely by James. James Wilson and uh, John Adams during our family. But, uh, but uh, read with his teachings on common sense about those maxims that, uh, that those precepts that the ordinary man not only grasps at once, but has to understand just in getting on with the business of life before he can start trafficking in theories. And so before the average man would start bantering with David Hume about the meaning of causation, he knew his own act of powers to cause his own acts to happen. So the pitch of this book has been, that's where the American found us. That is where we find it. Not in theories, but in those, those precepts of moral judgment that one has to know in getting on with the business of life. And, and that's where the natural law is. The natural law is the ground of our laws. It's the laws that, it's the laws that tells us what kind of positive you want, the laws that are positive or enacted. Uh, you know, as, as Kant used to say, that before you see a positive law, like law of the, on the highway, it has to be a natural law that tells you why you're justified in having a law. Well, you know, you have 65 MPH, 30, but before you have those regulations, the signposts, you meet a principle that tells you why you're justified in having the laws that restrain the freedom of people to drive at houses that put now, the speech of putting this in life, it hasn't. But, you know, Dan, on this matter of the, um, of the natural law is the ground of, you know, um, why that biped who conjugates verb is a rights-bearing being. We, well, you must know something about rights and wrongs, principles of, that tell the difference between rights and wrongs. But it struck me that if I could try it on you, it struck me that there's a problem you can give in 30 seconds that could explain the whole problem. Can I just try it quickly with you now? Yeah, absolutely. And that is, uh, years ago, uh, I did a book called Philosopher in the Sea. And I recalled there a, a scene on Capitol Hill of a woman named June, Judith Dansinger, who was giving, uh, I'm speaking on the, the abuse of children. I don't want to make things too graphic for your, your, your audience. But she had slides of sexually transmitted diseases in infants of a year and a half old and nine months old. And now I say, let's say we have something like this. We find what's called Jones, who's making sex toys of, of, of female children. Now let's say the community confronts them. We say, what is our what is our natural response to that? And we try this. How about we give him a tax incentive to induce him to stop? 
or a deeper deduction for his, his, his taxes, even more money for keeping the kids. And I think we recoil from that. In fact, it used to be laughable when you raised that something like that. And probably could say, no, that's how you react. You want to tell them to stop. But you say the reaction is with a command, stop, which means you think there's something wrong about it. Wrong meaning what? Something you ought not do. And they say, well, wrong, what? Only for Joes? Or for anyone else who does things like this? In other words, you're making the move to the logic of a moral proposition. You're moving away from statements of merely personal preference, likes and dislikes. The statements about the things that are more generally or universally right or wrong, good or bad for others as well as ourselves. A natural reaction, the same case of the account, is not to make a deal with them, not to make a contract, not to overtax them, but to demand that he stop. So now that we come to the recognition that we find something like this, then we are prepared to pronounce it's wrong. The natural reaction is to forbid it. To whom? To anyone, to anyone and everyone who does it, which is to say, we may forbid it with the force of law. And there, in a nutshell, I think you find the original connection in Aristotle. The classic understanding, the connection between the, the ground of moral, the logic of morals and the logic of law. So that, my argument is, the law, no, it's strange. One of the things we have to deal with, and we dealt with it with our friends doing seminars with judges, they talk about invoking the natural. When may a judge invoke the natural law? not realizing it is underlying everything they do. They're using it at every turn and think the, pre the precepts are so woven with common sense that they're hardly even aware that they use. Let me give one example. Uh, in this case, but it's, it's about weightings are used every day. Yeah. Uh, years ago, that's a couple of years ago, I was put out uh, in our, our lovely apartment building. We were put out of the building as the fire department was fighting the fire. It was a cold evening, but not, nothing bad, but we're out there for three or two or three hours. I'll tell you, people were rather vexed <laughs> to, to be out there. And we, our liberty was being restricted, our liberty to walk into our own apartments. Now, isn't it interesting? Nobody thought that our rights were being violated. Because what? Now, how, does, how do they frame it? How do ordinary people frame it? Yeah, my freedom was being restricted, but it was restricted for a justified end. For the sake of protecting my life's life. So, I see a youngster about to go into uh, the metro in subway in um, Washington. He has a bicycle. And I said, wow, can you really do that? He said, yes, but not in Russia. It is. He, uh, he understands what it's, it's unreasonable to do that in Russia. He doesn't think it, his rights have been violated. His liberty has been wrongly restrained. My pitch, Dan, is that these are the judgments that ordinary people make every day as they frame naturally the questions around them. And there's nothing sort of inscrutable about the judgments they use as they, they, as they make these judgments. Yeah. And we've got, we, uh, you, these are lovely examples that we all sort of intuit this on, on a certain level. And, th and this right. is the way we act. Um, but you make you make a, a a fascinating claim that you know among uh, jurists and political philosophers these days that uh, the role of enmity to natural law has been taken on directly by the left. The derision has been left to the conservatives. 
What does this hostility to natural law look like on the left and the right today? If, if this is something that, that everyone sort of intuits and informs their own decision-making on a day-to-day basis, why do these jurists, um, very learned people on, on both the left and the right, struggle with this so much? Well, they're not just struggling on the left. They just rejected it. Yeah, <laughs> the side that's tweet. fair. Because, you know... Barack Obama was just too sophisticated to think that Almanac Craig was a reread, an absolute truth. I mean, Lincoln thought so, Madison thought so, but he was too sophisticated to, to really credit that possibility. And the words are a, a different kind of story. I think, in part, in part, it may be true that the, that the conservatives are the, the heirs of Justice Holmes, Holmes, that famous line of the path of law, saying he really hoped that every word of moral significance could be first from the law altogether. So we don't so we can have a pure law, law that doesn't have them making these vexings. Because it must it's underlined by the notion that you really doubt their moral truths. What so Holmes said, a universal truth is merely the truth of, held by that nation that can lick all others. In other words, those alarmists is a real denial of truth. Now some of my friends, my notable friends, I don't unmention names, but people I've known, figures in the third movement. They recoil from things done in the war, and they recoil from the decision in Roe versus Wade. And, and what they thought is these, these are judges running amok because they're infatuated with what they think is moral reasoning. Their advice is that they're finding rights that are nowhere mentioned in the text of the Constitution. And we must, every time someone moves away from the text of the Constitution, as one, as, as one of my friends said, the judge is looking inside himself. In other words, once you move away from the text of the Constitution, they doubt that there really are moral truths out there outside the Constitution. And of course, uh, is the way with the founders, with with Matt, Matt Jim, with John Marshall, Alexander Hamilton, James Wilson, that their neck was trying to explain them. And they decided cases, they would trace their judgments back to those anchoring axioms that underlay their judgments to explain why it was reasonable to judge. And they, they didn't think everything was anything strange about moving outside the text of the Constitution for the sake of finding the, 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 the ground, the ground that makes it sensible. Uh, but what we have here is a, a conservative class, some good friends of mine, who really lost confidence in their moral truths accessible to reason. You can't depend on them. You know, my beloved friend, Anthony Scalia said, um, we cannot get a consensus on natural law. And I said, well, did, can we get a consensus on that proposition? That, 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 you, you can get truth only when you have a consensus. Because we didn't get, I didn't get my ballot. Your other friends didn't get your ballot. If we had our ballots, we would have voted against your claim that the presence of disagreement marks the absence of truth. Uh, and, and as I pointed out, that you have uh, even Scalia as an originalist, countering other originalists disagreeing with him, somehow the fact that originalists disagreed with one never shook his confidence that originalism, as he understood it, had truths to discern. So there was a curious way. Scalia himself was sure, of course, there were more, these moral truths, but he thought he, he knew the main because he, was, he held to the mainly because he was Catholic and he didn't trust other people to come to them. On, on the, and many Protestants have that, that, that suspicion of um, natural law and giving us access to truth outside the scriptures, of course. But 
Of course, that is the official claim. Thomas Aquinas says, the divine law we know through revelation, but the natural law we know through that reasoning that is accessible to human beings. So as you know, the, when the Catholic Church's arc against abortion, it's never appealed to faith. It's just a kind of a combination of the evidence of science and biology, woven with principle reasoning. Tell us why that offspring in the womb is anything less than you. Doesn't speak yet. They do deaf mutes. Doesn't have arms and legs. Other people lose arms and legs in the course of their lives without losing anything necessary. They're stately as human beings. So the upshot is there's nothing you could cite to disqualify this child of the womb as a human being that would not apply to many people walking about while outside the womb. In other words, you don't have to be Catholic to do this. And that, in fact, has been the, the, the argument of the church. No, we're not appealing to, to faith. We're appealing now to the principle, the, 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 more, the principles of moral reason that are accessible to ordinary folks. People understand it. It's just as remember, Lincoln used this argument. You, you probably saw me doing the, the, the conversation of an owner of slaves. Why are you just uh, making slave the, the black man? It's because he's less intelligent than I'll beware. The next white man comes along, more intelligent you may enslave you. Is he dark in the year? The next white man who comes along, uh, who is even lighter in complexion than you may enslave you. And the upshot is there's nothing but sight to disqualify the black man. It will not apply to many whites as well. Now notice, nothing in this chain of reasoning appeals to faith or revelation. It could be understood across the religious divisions, Baptists, Catholics, atheists. And, um, and that, is, that is exactly the appeal that it could be understood. And you don't need a college education to understand it. Lincoln's actors were, were accessible to ordinary people without public school educations in the middle of the 19th century. Yeah, and you you make a great choice. And in, in, there are two quotes at the very beginning of your book, and one is from Montesquieu, and the other is from Deuteronomy. And I, I, I want to read this because, because the, scriptures, the scriptures themselves make this point. And this is from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses uh, 11 through 14. For this command which I am giving you today is not too wondrous or remote for you. It is not in the heavens that you should say, who will go up to the heavens to get it for us and tell, it to, uh, tell us it, that we may do it. Nor is it across the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea to get it for us and tell us of it? What, <clears throat> what we may do, uh, <clears throat> that we may do it. No, it is something very near to you, in your mouth and in your heart to do it. Oh my gosh, Dan, there's something about your rendering of that that almost makes me weepy. Yeah, I, I could, you, you've delivered it beautifully. <laughs> Gosh, did I did I really put that in? You did, and and it's 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 a great um it's it's one of those great things, one of those passages for 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 folks that come from a faith tradition that might be hesitant about the claims of natural law to revisit. And there's there's testimony in the scriptures themselves to this. Um, you remember you remember Paul in Romans when the when the Gentiles who have not the law do by nature the things of the law. There is a law unto themselves. But do you want to do the, the Montesquieu? Want to, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we could, yeah, we could do the Montesquieu. So this is from. You're, you're awfully good at this. Yeah. <laughs> this is from uh, The Spirit of the Laws. It says, 
Particular intelligent beings may have laws of their own making, but they have some likewise which they have never made. Before laws were made, there were relations of possible justice. To say that there is nothing just or unjust, but what is commanded by the positive laws, is the same as saying that before describing the describing of a circle, all the radii were not equal, um, which is an excellent geometric analogy um, illustrating this principle. Um, one, of, one of the things is that I, I appreciated, um, as, as somebody who reads a lot of natural law literature, there are rival accounts of natural law. And as, as Samuel Gregg, uh, the former director of research here at Acton, you know, he used to always say that there's no fight club like natural law fight club. That uh, oftentimes you get, you get people who believe in the natural law that get very bogged down in very theoretical debates about the natural law. And, you, and your book doesn't delve deeply into these sort of scholastic conflicts. No, I, 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 I'm trying to get past that to say, I'm going to try to take it down to something really elementary that we can understand before we get into so natural law theory. Yes. Oh, yeah. And it and it's and it's principled centered. And I, I really I really think that's a that's a great approach, both both philosophically and rhetorically, is is talking through it like that. Um what were it, you know, you mentioned that this is a very self-conscious decision to take this sort of approach. Yes. Yes. How 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 do you see this this book? Because um, you've written other books on natural law, and this is this is that you know the title is mere natural law. Um, right. So, could you elucidate for our listeners, sort of sort of why why that principled centered approach? Why why are we talking about mere natural law? rather than trying to parse out all of these distinctions and enter into these debates that scholars partake in all the time. Well, I mentioned very briefly that I, I wasn't going to use this book to go through some notable examples of the natural law to explain why I wasn't doing that. I did some of this in my book, um, Constitutional Illusions and Anchoring Truths. I did a, a chapter on the natural law now and, and then the ever again, you know, and you have all these, you know, the... Uh, um, the uh, uh, Spinoza was a Spinoza that th fish occupy the the right to occupy the water. I thought this was the uh, Kearns and Hammerstein theory of natural law. Fish got to Kearns got to fly, or or or, or Dick Posner years ago saying um, that infanticide and incest must be in accord with natural law because they seem to be an enduring part of the human experience. They seem to spring from something in human nature. Well, now, it's not, it's, we're not doing a generalization on, on, the, on the checkered record of our species. The natural law has always had a sense of what is higher and lower in human beings. So Lincoln referred to those, uh, the better angels of our, the, called by the better angels of our nature. Uh, we've always had pleasure for recognition of the wrong of taking innocent life. And you don't, you don't get there as Kant said by simply giving us a, uh, a generalization of what people over the years have done. That's not the way to get there. So over the years, I've been closer to, as my first things and the other books to, to, to Kant to say, I don't know why Kant has given a bad rap about <laughs> that law, but it's, it's, we draw these principles out of the notion of a rational creature as such. That is, what are those truths? That are accessible to a creature of reason. I begin drawing out there. And uh, I just want to, I, 
I've been just so touched by my dear late friend, Dan, Dan Robinson, who's just really a genius. And he you know, spent his last 20 years lecturing at Oxford on, on Thomas Reed and David Hume and Kant. And, and they're wonderful instructions and entertainments. You can get them on YouTube. Daniel Robinson lecturing at Oxford on, on these things. Um, and in our conversation, I, mean, I think I dedicated first things to them, one of my old dearest friends. How many, how many nights long distance were on? How many days walking through the streets of Amherst or Georgetown? But I think this was, it, it, it was a time to get past theories. To my people, what we really know, what the average man knows. You know, I said, hey, take, take a look. You know, one principal thing I use is uh, ask the average man, what would you say if you heard that Jones accused of a serious crime? was an intensive care following surgery that Tyler Klein was done. The average man, I'm sure, would say, why has he been prosecuted? Which is to say the average man would instantly grasp. So, so again, one of those things to be grasped, per se, no, to he grasped to himself, that you don't cast moral judgments on people who are powerless to affect the extra talking about. So he uses one of our anchoring principles that we don't hold people blameworthy for acts for acts they were powerless to affect. Thomas Reed said that that action was as good as anything in Euclid. And, and I say, well, we, well, we could argue whether it was Jones really was under hypnosis, whether he really incapacitated, and all those things are contingent and madly variable. But the one thing that is never contingent in this mix is the principle itself. That if we if Jones really was incapacitated. We know we can't hold it responsible for the blog. Now it surprises people to see how many things we can begin to thread out of our law and without it, and, and people thread out without quite realizing that they're there. Then you somehow end up from this same as you as you see me, Dan, just draw just drawing in just drawing step by step out of that we well, if we respect we John Stuart Mill says, we stop using terms like like and dislike. We start using terms like right and wrong as we think someone might be rightly punished for what he's doing. But, it, but we just aren't punishing only wrongdoers, which obliges us to use the most demanding canons of evidence in testing the evidence of accusations of guilt. And if you follow, follow the chain down the line, you say, anyone accused of a crime should have access to the witnesses of evidence against them for the sake of rebutting them and in rebutting them, giving us a verdict that is substantively accurate in distinguishing between innocence and guilt. And my point is, you say, if we follow that line, that right to confront the witnesses against you, that would be there even if it hadn't been mentioned in the Sixth Amendment. It'd be there even if there were no Sixth Amendment. And the point I was trying to make is, look, you may have judges, judges and juries who are corrupted, but that doesn't affect our sense of the rightness, the categorical truth of the proposition that anyone accused of wrongdoing should have access to the witness against them for the sake of being able to rebut them. But what are we saying once we said that? We're saying any regime that considers itself a rule of law must contain that principle, must contain that principle. So you could say, well, it's categorical. You could say, that could you mean by, by saying it's categorical. But anyway, now, interesting, we have for our fans dealing with common good. We say, look, 
to the extent that you have a society based on, operates on the base of principles of this kind that are true of necessity, good of necessity, and they are shaping the way we're living among ourselves, there's something then commonly good about living our lives according to these kinds of principles. Yeah, absolutely, and and we and we t- and we and we talk about this term. We use this rights language a lot, um, very intuitively, right? But we've also got this distinction in 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 law and in legal theory when we're talking about the common good and the, and the sort of natural rights versus civil rights. And this is this is a discussion you get involved in uh, in, yeah. in the book. What what are the what's the difference between those two and and how does that affect how we think through those 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 different questions? Well the one example you use that seems to people could catch on to right away, probably some of you use it is we imagine that visitors from London getting off the airport in New York. We don't think we have to look at his passport before we protect him from an assault on the street, an unjustified assault. But the same man may not take himself over to the city cows of New York and expect to be enrolled at that subsidized rate of tuition that the people of New York make available to citizens of New York, people who live there, pay taxes there. And so, so there's a difference between rights that are created with certain kinds of enclaves, like the right to get access to that public education in New York, the right to use the squash courts at Amherst College. Now we say those are rights, those are rights, civic rights, you know, created in these city settings. And so what, but then what name would you give when you say that there is, to the kind of right you're talking about, when you're saying that we don't have to look at the passport of this, what is the ground of this claim to that kind of protection? There's something to do with this human state, something about him with his human standing. But why do we treat him in that way? Well, of course, the, the real explanation can't come from anything in the Constitution. I mean, it comes from the source of the tree, the Constitution. It comes from it from Lincoln saying, nothing made in the graven image was sent into this world to be imprinted, to be treated as a nothing. And now, in a matter of the civic thing, you certainly heard me say that natural rights and civic rights. Uh, uh, James Wilson saying, we did not bring forth this government for the sake of inventing new rights through the positive law, but securing and enlarging those rights we have by nature. So Blackstone would say, when we enter civil society, we give up those unrestricted rights, rights we have in the state of nature, including our liberty to do history. And Wilson aptly said, when did you ever have a liberty to do mischief? As Lincoln would later say, when did you ever have a, a right to do wrong? Those laws that are restraining you from raping and murdering are not restraining you from anything you, you ever had a rightful liberty to do. So the question is, what rights are we giving up when we enter under this, this new constitution? The answer given by the Federalists was none. It was Hamilton, Hamilton, here the people surrendered nothing. It wasn't the purpose of this project to give up our natural rights in entering this constitution. It was the purpose to secure them. Now, the right to life never meant a life to life everlasting. It didn't mean that the government could not put you in, in harm's way for the sake of defending your fellow citizen, defending the country. What it meant is the right not to have your life taken in a lawless way without justification. Just as we say, right, not to have your property taken in a lawless way without justification. 
It's the same thing that we attach to anything we call right. So we would say, we have a presumptive claim to all dimensions of our freedom. Braiding hair, making a living, shining shoes. And we say, there's nothing trivial about these, right? Because there's nothing trivial about the people who bear them. And we say, the burden should fall to the government. Well, we see that naturalized engaged in this way. The burden should fall to the government in, in explaining where it's justified in restraining this freedom of, of ordinary people. My friend Bob Bork years ago in a, I'm sorry, maybe saying things we've heard already. No, no, yeah. this is great. Well, but, but Bob Bork years ago made a, uh, had a, what is a judge, use the First Amendment to protect a sculptor. Now, that is a stretch because the First Amendment was made for political speech, not for sculpture. But it makes perfect sense in regard, in the sense of the understanding of those people who were dubious about the Bill of Rights. You know, Theodore Cedric say, why do you think you need something, some, something here, an amendment to tell you that, you know, of course, in a, in a republic, you have a presumptive right to speak, to publish, to meet with others. Um, the this sense there is that you have a presumptive claim to all dimensions of your freedom. Yes, the right to sculpture, to write, to, to make a living, uh, uh, making suits. You have, a, you have a presumptive claim to all your, your free, freedoms, as long as they're innocent. There's nothing wrong with them. And the burden falls with the government before it would restrict your freedom that from, by barring you from, from it, pursuing this, this kind of well, craft. So it's, um, you know, it's part of the construction. You know, people, it's a, even judges are surprised to know that there was a serious serious reservations about the Bill of Rights getting not from people who were served by rights, but a concern that we'd kind of misinstruct the American people about the source of their rights, so that we find people saying, those rights I have through the First Amendment, as though in the absence of that amendment, you wouldn't have had the right to speak of the public, that these are simply the gifts of the positive law. And therefore, if they didn't, if the positive law says nothing about my right to be free from having rent controls opposed to me or, or things of that kind, says nothing in the first, I guess it must, as for all the powers, presumptively the powers, the powers of government to do it. That was part of the concern that it, it's, you're altering the lens. But, and at the same time, what we do is was we start losing our capacity to deliberate about these things. It reduces those natural rights claims to civil rights claims. It, it gets things very mechanics. How's how Harry Black reason about what does the constitution? I've heard conservatives say this. Well, does the constitution protect uh, babies? So, well, it looks as though it protects only people who are postnatal, people are being extradited. You know, uh, and he said, well, depending, depending on what you call, what kind of, is this a human being? What is the evidence of the question of whether it's a human being? And if it is a human being, what is the ground you bring forth just to say you're going to remove? That human being, from the protections you typically accord to to creatures who fit that that, that description, what's the principle ground? In other words, in which whatever you call, what's the principle ground on which you're saying that this entity, this living entity, is not the kind of creature who who merits the protection of the law? That's how you frame the problem as as a, a as a principle problem, as as a moral judgment. The man fathers knew how to do that. But we've lost that as we think in terms of the, you know, the ACLU goes, it's a peep show. It's peep show speech. Uh, can we can we take the First Amendment and say, here's a peep show, we make a connection. 
instead of saying, well, whatever it is, is there something about it that, that justifies us in restraining it or, or justifies us in protecting it? Instead of playing a little game, you know, we say, um, there's that argument at the beginning of the kind of whether somebody said, why did you, why did you establish my right to wear a hat? Okay, well, let's see, maybe we could come up with a like that. People should not be compelled to remove their hats the way that um, um, William Penn was compelled to move his hat. And then later on, you can have a, motor a motorcycle claiming they're compelling me to wear this helmet. And then we find the ACO people arguing, ah, is a, a motorcycle helmet a hat, as was understood under the 11th Amendment? It's a game we're playing. Instead of being able to deliberate about what is this thing we're talking about, what is it, and what kind of part from what you call it, what is the justification for moving, leaving it outside the protection of the law, or bringing it within that the scope of things that we think the law may rightly reach? Absolutely. So the, the, this this sort of deliberation has has atrophied. Not, right, right. Exactly and, the right word. Exactly and, right word. Yeah, and the, and that and that and that and that natural rights reasoning, you know, is something that could be you know very helpful for contemporary issues, legal or otherwise. Of course. What, what do you think are are some of the issues that this in particular can can help us think through now in our in our in our modern context? Well. Things that I think are going to really vex us. I think well, I see one of the most serious questions before is threatening not only families, but threatening us as a people who can't even use the tests of truth. It was the question of transgenderism. And you find, you know, when the court, this court came up, takes him up to the court, and Justice Gorsuch is writing, and we come to this remarkable notion that if Anthony Stevens thinks he is a man, I see he's a woman that it would be a matter of sexual discrimination if we were fail to respect his judgment. So everybody around them is going to be compelled to respect their judgment. If we don't, then we're doing something wrong. And and those workers around and their their employers could be imperiled. Why is he doing that? He's looking at the text of the Constitution. What did, what did sexual discrimination mean in 1960? Not from what, what, what you thought sex the dictionary said about it, which is what it is. You know, the, the doctrine for the congregation of faith, uh, and Ratzinger that was said, look, it has not always been in Italy or Hungary. But as long as there are human beings, there will be men and women, males and females. It is why we are made males and females. That is the telos or purpose of sex. We don't know why it should be inadmissible. From judges who think they're working under a canon of conservative jurisprudence, that they can't move beyond that text to the objective truth that lies beyond that text. Look, 50 years ago, those lawyers from, you, you, I'm sorry, repeating this because, you know, Dan, you, you've heard this already. You've heard me on it. But 50 years ago, those lawyers from Texas and Rover so did the most exquisite brief, drawing on the most updated findings of MBI. For the sake of extracting these three points, that that offspring of the womb has never been anything than other than human from its first moments. It received its nourishment from its mother, but it's never been really a part of the mother's body. All right. Now, now, if that's, and yet we now have 
look, we have a, 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 a Democrat nominee to the court who felt constrained by the doctrines of her party from pronouncing on the question that she knew what, a, what who, who was a woman. Now we have six justices, conservative justices in reaching their case who cannot pronounce and verify the human standing of the child in the womb. And so you find Justice Kavanaugh as the fifth vote against overruled, say, this is interesting. We're, we're too divided. Some people, some pro-lifers actually believe the fetus, the fetus issue, believe it's been an unquestioned staple of this, in the textbooks of embryology for years. What is the point? That is, yeah, it's a matter of belief. And yet this is what the conservative jurists have talked themselves into. As they've talked themselves into those that we cannot reach any question of moral substance on the matter of abortion. Because abortion is not in the Constitution. So there are no rights we can proclaim to abortion in the name of the Constitution. And therefore we may not, we may not, even though it's the center of the problem. But you know, you frankly say it, but marriage was not mentioned in the Constitution when the court struck down the laws that barred interracial marriage in 1967. And as my dear friend Gary Bradley noted in his point, the federal government had ample reason to be dealing with this business of abortion well before Roe versus Wade, and had to deal with abortion in, medic, in military hospitals, in diplomatic outposts abroad, abortion in the terror zone, abortion in the District of Columbia. Just, you know, the year before they came out with Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court sustained the laws that barred abortion in the District of Columbia. But we have, in resisting the liberal judges, the, the conservatives have talked themselves into the notion that there's something something inept for the judicial function to be reaching outside the text. And whenever, they, whenever they're doing that, they're, in, they're in, engaged in something very dangerous and adventurous. And I said, well, what is the problem? Well, we have moral arguments all the time. But C.S. Lewis points out, no, no argument makes sense unless you, the conversation makes sense. Unless you assume that you have standards of reason, of judgment, to talk about which, what in this argument is persuasive and not persuasive, what strikes you as true or false. So why the hysteria that if we leave the text of the government, you're going to get, my God, we're going to get into moral arguments. Arguments about the, the ground of the rightness or wrongness of things. Yes, welcome to the world. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the world we live in. Why is it that suddenly you turn on a big Suddenly, things that are accessible to ordinary people become inaccessible to somebody and wooly when he puts on a robe as, as a judge. You know, I used to say, for the judge to get through the day without use, uh, making use of the natural, the moral reasoning of the natural law, is rather like asking, can I order the coffee without using syntax? You know, uh, it's, they, for some reason, very, very learned people have trouble seeing that it's woven into what they do. It, it becomes like the character Moliere who discovers, suddenly discovers he's been speaking prose all his life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and and uh, I say, gee, when may, when may the judges do this? So, uh, I, I absolutely love your, your passion in this interview and your passion in this book <laughs> when you make these arguments. Um, oh, was, I, was I showing passion there? Oh, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's wonderful enthusiasm. And, and the, the question I wanted to conclude with is 
where does that enthusiasm come from personally for you? Um, there are a lot of people who make natural law arguments. There are a lot of people who think about the Constitution, but not everyone has the passion and enthusiasm that you do. And that's that's got to have some resonance in personal experience for you. And I, I'm just wondering if you could share with our listeners how you got passionate about natural law and the Constitution and, and, and became such an effective person. Uh, uh, proponent of these ideas and and a, and a great uh, share of that enthusiasm. She was. I really haven't thought about that. Dad. I really haven't thought about that. I just it was a natural reaction when we get into arguments and uh, and we get we get embarrassed by what we don't know. My beloved friend Dan Robinson, fifty years ago, I was saying, "Well, talk about abortion. It looks like a it looks like a temple," and Dan says, "It's not a temple." It may look like a temple, but I can take tissue and that temple, put it around the other part, and you have a, a you, you have a, an arm growing where you're not expecting it to be. It's never it's never been anything other than the human instruments first moments. So that um, there's quite an op- eye opener for me when um, Paul Ramsey pointed out that everything we have genetically we have we had when we were no larger than that zygote, no larger than the period at the end of the sentence. And I think there's this point of awakening. So how could I have been so blind on this stuff and if I learned to reason about it? I think this is supposed to saying, I think it is, it's just natural for people to have a sense of, of moral argument, the rights and wrongs, and, and feel passionate about them. And maybe it's because uh, <laughs> I've encountered so much hostility. <laughs> Work, working in a set with like, like cameras. And, um, and some people tell me it's a comic turn. Sometimes it, it's, the comic turn is remarkably useful in these things. You know, we think things like, I married her because of her exquisite blondness. She went perfectly with the drapes in my pocket. But now I'm doing the place over in Art Deco. And she just doesn't go. Now, when you listen, you listen, they laugh. What do you reckon? You're recognizing there's something trivializing about this notion of marriage, that when you're connected with somebody this way, you're saying there's something admirable, deeply admirable about this person. And it, it's something of, of raw It's about character. And that character will remain even as, as looks atrophy with age. And um, somehow it's the, it's, sometimes it's the comic line that brings it to us, you know? And you ain't going... Um, sometimes I, people come up with lines and I think, you know, these, these, lines, these curious lines, that people are not used to living with radio or uh, Jewish comedians and so on, or they, with Uncle Louis who would come right back at them with, with, when you walked, you often a street by my back and you come back at them. You know, in, in my driving back and forth as we're committing to Amherst, they say, I would listen to the um, radio programs I grew up as a kid in the 40s, Jack Benny. And the remarkable thing is that those radio programs give us an almost anthropological picture of what the American people understood about natural law at that time. Because the laugh, you see, that is the, is the sure sign that people got the joke. And you say, say Jack Benny shows with his bow and arrow, he's really lethal. So Phil Harris says, I'll bet you can't hit I bet you're dying. You can't hit a 
this apple off the head of Don Wilson. Don Wilson, well, wait a minute, I want none of that. And Chen said, what's your problem? It's our money. And, <laughs> and, That's good. and the, the writers would not have put that in unless they thought, thought that, the, that the mass audience, the people they know, had a natural understanding of something wrong there. What is it? You don't put human life at risk for something so trivial. It's a game. And, you know, it, it is remarkable to me, Dan, because you see, you, you really get sense of the... And that's why I think comedy is often such a good path into the problem. It, because people are... Um, I remember once, Adi Dankerfield said, I was, I was scared the first time I had sex. I was scared because I was all alone. <laughs> and, and people laugh at that and they don't realize that they just put in place a very serious argument that if two people in tandem are replicating the masturbation of the joke, guess what? It's still not sex. It's not sex in its real meaning. In other words, dancing, people are made to realize, they don't realize the point that the, the, the joke brings out a natural reaction in them. And then the question is, what, what can we look back to see what that joke is making evident to us? That's why I think, well, you know, you're sort of saying, I think the comedians and philosophers are often the same business, that the comedians will touch the core of the matter in a way that pe people may not accept, will accept to, a, to, to comedy what they may, will not accept given to in philosophy. Now, Woody Allen bullets over Broadway, this, this, this guy, Chuck, this, this, this guy who's found the city and starts taking over writing the place for the playwright. And this is his boss's mouth is just screwing everything up. So they take him to the, to the dock and he shoots her. At that moment, the audience is on his side. They want him to shoot her. What you would not accept from Nietzsche, you could accept from Woody Allen, Keston, as a comedy, but my God, no, no, it's, it's rich and has to go. And, um, and it, it's, it's one of those curious revelations, which is why I say that the, the comedians often are in the business, but, but again, I guess the serious point here, well, how do you, how do you get into this? What, what reaction you get from audiences? But, um, when I used to give my course, I can tell you about that. I used to give, first, the first thing that came out of book course, mine called political obligations. And one day I began the course by saying, let's be sure in the right place, I'm Hadley Arcus. Some kid in the back is up and you what do you mean by that? We're back and forth, what is this about? The word gets back to me later, but someone told him that if he let go the first thing I said, he'd never be able to work his way out, out of the argument. So he had to resist whatever I said. And I told people, look, if you're aware that it was not the laws of physics that pushed you into this class of this moment. You had some free will, judgment to make, to making this choice. You probably conceded everything I have to, I need in order to make the argument. And I said, I said, look, let's, if you forgive me, can I give one more example? Yeah, absolutely. And remember, I forgot my name, I said, let's say Eric asked me a question. I say, well, I don't know, Eric, I don't know. Um, the only exception I know was, it seems to me that uh, I'd suffered from family with this old ennui. 
And the only exception I know is the case when I've fled that old ennui and I suddenly turn and see her fabulous face. Mm-hmm. I get no kick from champagne. I've given, he's asked me a question. I've given him a lyric. He knows I've dissed him. I've not answered the question. I said, tell me how you know that I didn't answer the conversation. I asked him, what's the what's answer to conversation? How do you know it is a conversation? How do you know this was the conversation? You have access to some principles of judgment, that's germaneness, the relevance. What? And, and then I used to say too, this course contains the codicil that everything here could be wrong. Because when you say that, you're saying, well, if our standards of right and wrong, we'll be able to test this out. And we at least agree on this. We're going to be using the currency of giving reasons. Once you've got that, you've got the whole the framework of the book. Well, thank you for doing a fabulous job introducing oh. what I'm sure will be many, many readers to this framework. This is a wonderful book. Um, you can get it from Regnery Gateway. We'll have uh, links to uh, to the book so uh, uh, listeners can uh, pick up a copy of the book. And thank you so much for, uh, for, for sharing this time with all of us. And, and thank you for this incredible book. Well, but, but, but Dan, listen, I hope I can keep in touch with you because you've been so dear in this interview. Oh, it's the, you've been wonderful. It's your joy is infectious. And I can't thank you enough for the way, way in which you've read it and, and taken it up, Daniel, and your oral renderings of the, <laughs> of the, of the epigraphs. <laughs> God bless you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Hadley. Uh, it's wonderful talking, and, and we'll be in touch again uh, again hey. uh, soon. Well, as as Humphrey Bogart says, this looks like the beginning of a beautiful friendship. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.